0: then did my graduate studies in washington dc i was in dc for uh, just shy of a decade um, i studied at catholic university in uh, specializing in sort of early modern and modern european history and uh, my sort of area of research was on the origins of the modern catholic social tradition um and so uh, that's you know that's something that's of great interest to me um, the reason, if some of you may be wondering why I was sort of asking about this pastor or that pastor, um, uh, the reason that I have some familiarity, and I'm, I'm sorry for all the, especially the Bridgeport and a few Queens, uh, Diocese of Queens uh, people, I'm sorry I only know the Archdiocese well. I was um, the Director of Adult Faith Formation for the Archdiocese of New York for, um, I guess, about five or five years or so, maybe, yeah. Almost six years, and so during that time, uh, you know, we traveled all around the diocese, got to meet you know, most of uh, of the pastors, and and lots of uh, you know, we did lots of different things. So, um, you know, I, I, a lot of the parish names are, are still uh, are, are fresh in my mind, and, and some of the pastors uh, that I know, uh, and so it's it's uh, it's good to hear you know hear those those places and those pastors again. But now I'm, I'm currently working at the Mother Cabrini Health Foundation, which is a, um, a grant-making foundation that uh, you know we give grants to help, help the health and sort of uh, overall well-being of, of low-income individuals across the state of New York. And what I do there is, um, in addition to being involved in the grant, I'm responsible for what we call mission integration, which is, um, even though we're technically a, a non-Catholic um, foundation, it was created by the the sale of Fidelis. I don't know if, if any of you, you maybe have heard of. Uh, Fidelis was an insurance product and um, was recently, a, a few years ago, sold. And, and this foundation was created. And so the, the bishops, the eight bishops of New York, um, each uh, had, had been a part of the creation of Fidelis about 30 years ago. And so now the eight bishops are are members of this corporation, this foundation. So, we operate, we have as part of our mission that we operate in accordance with, with Catholic teachings. And so, one of my responsibilities there is to make sure that you know, the grants we give and, and, and all of that is, is in line. I do have, in addition to sort of this church history background, uh, I've spent a good bit of time studying moral theology. And so, um, so that's a little bit about me. I, I live in the Bronx and Throgs Neck, my parish is St. Benedict's. Um, and so, uh, that's uh, the sort of the, the biographical overview. I don't mind saying, I mentioned my research. Um, you know, I, I have, um, it's, it's been submitted, you know, because of the coronavirus and, and everything, we've heard lots about clinical trials and, and things like that going through,
1: um,
0: you know, the, the process of, of being uh, sort of FDA approved. And so I'm a little, it's a little bit slow, but my dissertation is actually in clinical trial with the FDA as a cure for insomnia. Um, so, uh, no, that was a joke, because uh, it's, it's sort of dry and boring, right? Um, and so, you know, if somebody is is having difficulty getting to sleep, you know, if you shoot me a note, I, I'll send it to you, and by like page three, you're guaranteed to be out. Um, so that's, that's uh, that's just another tidbit for your your information um so let's just and you don't have to bear with i i so i should say in terms of this course this intro to church history course i've been uh, teaching it i think pretty pretty much annually since 2013 um so i think this will be uh, at least the eighth year but there were a couple years i think where i did it twice so, uh, you know, this is a course I, I like very much. I, I have familiarity with. I, I will say that, you know, it's a big uh, it's a big task in front of us to try and cover as much history as we can and what's a relatively short period of time. Um, but we'll do our best and, uh, and see how far we get. Um, I also teach the seminarians at, uh, at St. Joseph Seminary in American church history, uh, so sort of the two courses I have that I've I've been doing for the last several years. So if we could just briefly kind of go through this syllabus, I wanna make a few comments, but I don't wanna dwell on it too much. Uh, I think, you know, by now you you all have a good sense of, you know, how this, uh, how these work. it sounds like everybody is at least, you know, in their third semester, most of you are in your third year. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of familiarity with the processes uh, at the seminary. All your attention with respect to the syllabus, um, My contact information, uh, please don't hesitate to to reach out you know if you have any questions or you know need to let me know something. Uh, you know you can send me an email. that That phone number is my cell phone, which I, I have absolutely no problem with you calling or texting. I would say if you text since i i won't know any of your numbers you know and, and and in the past students have done this it's really no problem just identify yourself you know hi this is, this is whatever lucas uh from from class and, and that kind of thing um but whichever way you know is the most sort of natural or, or easy for you um to to communicate I'm, I'm happy to to be available in any whatever whatever format works best um, you know I, I don't I don't think there's too much I to say that the core schools and, and learning outcomes you know are self-explanatory um, you know we are approaching this obviously from from a specific perspective um, you know with within and thinking with the mind of the church uh, we'll talk more about doing um, church history here in, in, a, in a couple of minutes but um, you know obviously it's it's um, You know, something that is is worth, obviously, reiterating at the outset. For the course text, um, the the book is by Vidmar. Sorry, it's kind of hard to see. But um, I think I mentioned this in one of my emails to you all. There are two editions. The first edition has a yellow cover. um, And... I don't know the, the, what's the easiest way to do this? Did anyone wind up getting the first edition? Maybe either just like signal with your hand. Yeah, you have it, Uh, Bob or Rob. You go by Robert or Bob, I'm sorry, I don't remember.
2: Bob.
0: Bob, so Bob, you have the first edition. Okay, anyone else? Father Joseph does. And Marcia, is that, yeah. Okay, good. So let me let me just um, think about maybe the best way to do this is, um, let me make a note of this because I have, I mean, I, when I started doing this course, the second edition wasn't out. And so I have all the page numbers for the reading around that, that first edition. Um, I'm just writing the names down. So it's Bob, Father Joseph and Marcia, right? And, no one else has the first edition. Okay, so I'll I'll, um, email you in the coming days the uh, sort of a similar version of the second page of the syllabus with the the alternate page numbers. It's, um, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, But the second edition has, you know, some additional content. There is, there are some, some other changes that I like I mean, in general, but there's no, there's no issue with with either edition. Um, so Vidmar, I think is, you know, it's in preparing for this course and I, I still, you know, keep an eye on, on what's published. It's uh, there are a lot of books that cover, um, the, the history of the Catholic church. And I think this is really in terms of being readable and concise. But, but as thorough as one can be in a single volume, I, I think it's it's quite good. So I, I hope you'll like it um, and find it and find it helpful. You know, obviously there, there may be things to to ask questions about or to disagree with that that Mar says. But um, you know, in general, I think it's a very good text. I may um, I, I don't foresee a lot of it to be honest with you, but but in some instances and, and as a supplement. Placed some readings on reserve, which I guess I could have edited that to, to um, just say, you know, on on um, populi, 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 however you say that word. Um, and uh, you know, again, it's, it's by and large we stick to the Vidmar text, but um, you know, here and there I may I may throw something else up um, for, for your reading. The requirements, again, I think are pretty straightforward. Um, There's a a midterm and a final, and then a book review, which I'll say more about probably next week. Um, But the point of the book review is to allow you all the opportunity to um, explore a topic that that you're interested in, in, in more depth. So one of the things about, about the text, the Vidmar text is, uh, you know, again, it's, it's a single volume treating 2,000 years of history. So it goes quickly through, you know, topics and, and it's it's not able to go, you know, really deep. It's, it's more, you know, um, sort of the general treatment. And so the, the point of the assignment is really to give you the opportunity if there's something you're interested in, either from the, you know, from the reading or from the lecture for the first several weeks uh, or just something you're interested in. You know, apart from our, our own course, some topic in church history that, um, you know, you can read a, a,
3: um, a, a work that will go sort of dive deeper. So there's more depth, if you will,
0: in, in your study of one aspect of church history. Um, so that's that's the point of that assignment. I'll distribute, as I said, the assignment probably next week or in two weeks. Um, I'd provide a list, a long list a fairly long list of, of possible books that you can choose but then also you can run anything else that's not on the list that you might be interested in by me and you know I'm, I'm generally happy to sign off but the point is to, to look at a kind of serious work of, of church history and look at something a, a more narrow topic to get deeper more deep more deeply involved and engage with a particular um, subject. So then, you know, the second page, obviously, is just the list of uh, of our classes. Um, this this one is pretty, I, f- I think this semester we're pretty good in that we only have um, two weeks, right, where we don't meet. Sometimes I find it a little disjointed, um, depending on the, the way the calendar is set up. And, and there's a lot of classes that are, you know, you go two weeks and then you're off for a week or two. But February 15th for President's Day and then April 5th. Um, for Easter I think are the only two Mondays that we won't be meeting as we as we move forward. And then the vidmar uh, the, the reading is is um, you know gives you a sense it's it's unfortunately not perfectly broken out evenly as much as I wish it were. Uh, some weeks are you know around 40 30 to 40 pages others are, are closer to you know 20 or, or, or even um, yeah some, sometimes less so. Either way, we, we get through the book by the end, and almost inevitably, within a week or two, you'll, you'll be ahead in the reading of where where we are in, in the lectures, but um, that's okay. I, I don't mind that too much. And so
1: um,
0: that's, that's sort of how we'll proceed. Any questions on syllabus? Yeah, that's, Rob, uh, well,
1: I've got two. Um, how long is the uh, paper
0: going to be? Have you, is there a standard like? Yes. Um, oh, you know, I, I, Rob, before I answer that, let me say one thing I forgot to mention about the course requirements. Um, so the, the fourth component is um, the class attendance and participation, which is, you know, seems pretty self-explanatory. The one thing I will say is that, um, you know, participation on the one hand is asking questions. On the other hand, the, the part of the way I, I uh, judge that is by the um, forcefulness with which uh, students laugh at my jokes. Um, and so uh, I see some of you based on the reactions <laughs> are off to a good start. Yeah. Um, We've had a so, while. big laugh at jokes.
1: <laughs> yeah, no well You have obviously I had a class with Father Riley right? O'Reilly.
4: Yeah. O'Reilly's jokes yeah. are bad as I
1: They're classic. Well let, let me just say I
0: accept that as a challenge. Um if you think they can't get worse than that, um challenge accepted.
5: Um We also had Father
0: O'Neill. So, say say that again.
5: We'd also had Father O'Neill, father yeah. dinosaur.
0: Yeah, Feathered t rex uh, Okay, well, very good. I, I, I see I have my work cut out for me, but um, I think I'm up to the challenge. Um, so, Rob, you know, now that I've prefaced, you know, sort of an answer by referring to that, I was going to say, you know, like 20 to 25 pages is, is sort of the uh, the length of the book review, but clearly that's not, that's not it. I think it's... Um, about five to seven pages if I'm not mistaken um, uh, I, I mean I, I'm only I'm only uncertain because I, I have these, I just, you know before I distribute it I'll, I'll probably tweak the list a little bit of, of books but what it is is really a two-part a two-part assignment one is kind of like the book review type portion which is summarizing the main arguments but then I, I do like for you in this sort of second part Part of the paper to um, you know tie it into some of the major themes that we talk about in this class, um, and so that's a, a little bit less reflecting on. It's it's a little bit more of like your own view of how you know how the book is related to the class. But I think yeah, I think in general it's the the length
1: is between five to seven pages. Um, so
0: and then you had a second question.
1: Yeah, I have one other question um, on the midterm and final. This one always comes up right now with these Zoom classes, will they be take home?
0: So what I would say is uh, the final will not be take home. Um, the midterm, I would prefer it not to be take home as well, but I would say, um, that I'm open to the possibility of it based on our progress in the, in the class. Um, so as of now, it's scheduled as an in-class, like when I, when I set up the schedule, I have us, um, I mean, I have in mind that, that we, we might be able to on March 8th, um, set aside, um, you know, a certain portion, but, you know, given, given the, the situation, I think there's a, some, some decent chance that we'll switch that to a take home, but I do feel pretty strongly, um, around the final exam not being take home, just as a sort of matter of, of policy, if you will. So I, I would say that's that's more or less in stone, that that will be a sort of in-class such as it is exam, but the midterm, you know, we'll
5: we're, we're kind of wait and see. Uh, professor, do you have dates set yet for the book review and the
0: midterm? Yeah, so the midterm as of now is scheduled for March 8th. Um, Again, what's tricky, especially with with the way, um, you know, the, the spring semester is laid out is after this class, which is more of an introductory class, like look, we're it's, it's 20 minutes to eight, we're not gonna get deep into any of both the lecture material. And I, I don't intend to, other than maybe just start start in on some uh, sort of uh, key themes and, and some other things. But uh, you know, our first real like kind of lecture-based um, session together is next week. And then there's only one, two, three, four, four of those classes before the midterm. So um, it's a little bit challenging, but that's scheduled for for March 8th as of now. The paper, uh, I'd rather wait until let's just plan to go over it next week. Um, Although I guess this is the last because classes started last Tuesday, right? The, this is the last, um, probably first class that you have. Is that accurate? Yeah. So what I like to do is kind of, it, the, part of the reason I don't like to give it out in the first week is, I, I mean, I'm very flexible, to be honest with you, in terms of when you, you hand it in. I prefer, I mean, when it's due as a due date. I prefer not to make it due the, the last class, but I, I can be flexible outside of that. Um, And so I'd like to kind of, for you up to see what other assignments, you know, exist for your semester and, and, um, and, um, you know, the due dates around those. So let's talk about the due date next week. But my guess is it'll be, I mean, it'll be after Easter. Um, it'll be sometime in those last, you know, couple, uh, April 12th, April 19th, somewhere in there are those, those are the most likely candidates, but let's, let's talk about that next week. The reason I don't like it do on the last um, session is just, um, you know, honestly, if you're not if you're not studying for at least three weeks prior to the final, then you might as well not bother. Uh, That was a joke too. Um, So, does that sound okay, Paul? Great, thank you. May I ask Uh, a question, please? Um,
6: Please. Are the course requirements different for auditors versus those who are taking the course for credit? <laughs>
0: Tuck it up yeah, to I you. think the I think the answer is yes, right? Um, and you'll have to forgive me in the sense that I, I probably just want to confirm. I, I believe the um, writing a assignment is not required, the paper's not required, but I think they like for auditors to take the exams. Look, my, my policy is simply whatever the, the seminary's policy is. I, I don't have any. So what, is, is that how it typically works? You take the exams? Yeah, yes, that's correct. Yeah. That's right. Then that's that's what it will be. I mean, I, I mean, if you uh, feel, you know, interested in, in writing the, the paper, I, I would definitely read it and grade it and give you feedback and all of that, but I don't think it's a, it's certainly not a requirement, Um, but uh, that's, I'll leave that up to you. I think I see, I see clearly, pretty clearly in my thing, but so, you know, uh, I just need, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because I think I see everybody, everyone's status is is present here on my side of things. So I can tell that I think there's a, a handful of you all who are auditing, right? Good. Uh, Other questions?
4: Yeah, I just, um, I'm curious because the book, um, my youngest daughter just graduated from Providence about a year ago, so I asked her about Father Vidmar. And interestingly, she said that most people really liked this course because it was so easy. So I was wondering what your approach was compared to (laughs) Father Vidmar's.
0: My approach is to, to soften you up with the text and then bring the hammer down in the lecture. That's, yeah, that's what we're used
4: to. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have to say... Um, that was more a joke. I wasn't expecting you really to answer it. But you no, can
0: fair enough. I I, yeah, I, 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 um, I, don't mind the sort of... It helps me to make one other point about the class. Uh, and you'll, you'll, you know, figure this out in a sense um, quickly, probably, you know, next week. So being a, um, you know, having done my my sort of academic work in history means that I took a, a lot of history classes, right? Um, and
3: they
0: weren't all good. Uh, even though I, I'm naturally predisposed to history, I like it, I'm interested in it, I'm sort of motivated to, you know, to absorb it, um, it can be done in a, in a, in a, a way that's sort of dry and and um uh you know boring tedious whatever pick your pick your um, characterization and and so i I mean hopefully it's it's not too too dry i mean some of the stuff is like you know we're gonna have to go through very methodically but uh even if it sounds a bit of a cliche to me the the story aspect like the narrative aspect is is pretty important and um the the classes that I found the least beneficial to me were the ones where um, it, it was just a lot of names and dates. Um, and I think what I like, and this is actually getting to your <laughs> sort of comment, Doug. what I like about Vidmar is I think you sort of shared that Like the, the book is written in that style. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a readable text. Uh, it's not overly um, sort of bogged down by endless names and dates. I mean there's plenty of them. and you'll see as we go through the course, you know my style on the I'll provide outlines before each lecture. And my, my style is to give you <laughs> names and dates, lots of them on, on the outline, not because the goal of the course is to, to just compile a, a big long list of popes and, and um, uh, councils and, and things like that. But, you know, the details matter, but to me what's more important is understanding sort of uh, really the arc of, of the sort of the historical narrative. And, um, and so again, that's, that's something I actually like to say about my approach to the class, just in, in, in the interest of um, kind of setting expectations because I will give lots of names and dates, but then when we get to like, like the exams, I would much rather you know roughly when something is than um, than spend all, but understand why it matters than spend all of your time memorizing. I mean, the, the memorizing the names and dates is just like, uh, you know, not very helpful. I don't think in general as, as an approach. And it turns, it turns out, I don't know if you know, there's this really neat thing called the internet um, that was invented where all of this information is available. And so, without knowing, I don't know what the situation is in, in Bridgeport. Um, I mean, a number of you obviously are in diaconate formation. You know, if if preaching is is um, a possibility, I, I, again, I'm not sure what what the thing is in Bridgeport. I think in New York, it's possible, right? It's uh, it's sort of the the permanent deacons are able to preach, um, I believe, right? And so. You know, if you're preparing a homily, I mean, I'm thinking about this kind of practically, and if you're preparing a homily, I-, I would much rather you, if you want to draw on some historical point, the key thing is to know why this historical point matters, uh, and if, if you need to look up the details, you can do that very easily. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's kind of how I approach this, that, that the story is, is in many ways what matters much more than, than, than um every last year that that these things happened, although I will tell you what the year is and and who the names are and all of that stuff. So um, that was a little bit of a digression, but I think the reason I like Bitmar's text is because I I perceive a similar approach to history in it. Okay, other questions about the syllabus? This
1: is Rob, one comment real quick about the history, as far as the Mm -hmm. certain uh, where I'm located I have to preach every mass every weekend okay because the uh, for the other priests that are there English is not their first language so I will, you, I will tell you that if you want to try to keep the interest of people in the parish you need to work the history into a lot of this sometimes it really it would really break it helps make it more interesting if they can get some kind of a context of where it fits in particularly uh when you get into the, between the old testament new testament obviously but uh i found that being able to a lot of what i learned from my from my history from the beginning um over the years i have worked in when i'm doing when i'm preaching it's very helpful that's great thank you
0: okay any other i mean if you think of something you know after the fact you can certainly Contact me. Um, oh, so let's. One one other sort of housekeeping thing is um, I understand we still do. I shouldn't have uh, asked it that way. I, I guess we still take breaks for these classes. Is that true? Is that the practice among other professors? Sometimes um, some do. So, yes, oh, really? Some don't.
5: But when that, guess, we finish early. Don't go to night every Yeah, it depends right. how long you go.
6: Uh, you know, if, if your idea is, you know, to go from 7 until Nine. 8.45, 8.50, and then say call it a night, you know, then we don't need a break. But, you know, if we're, if we're going to go be going to 9.30 every night, then yeah, break break would certainly be something you want to put in there.
0: Thanks. George, that's it's it's definitely the latter. <laughs> My approach is definitely the latter, um, and 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 honestly, it's it's uh, selfish in a way. It's, it's just I every minute. Uh, I mean, like this this first class is is, is unique. I mean, I, in some ways, uh, it's like a little uh, false advertising that it, it's a sort of very conversational and everything. I mean, I, I always want you to feel free to ask questions to stop me when we're when we're in the lectures. Um, and we can discuss, you know, anything that comes up. But but by and large, it's it's a heavily lecture-based class. And um, because we have so much ground to cover, you know, really starting next week, I, I do tend to go to 9.30. I mean, what I will say is I won't keep us past 9.30, um, unless the class, you, you know, agrees by majority vote. And then, you know, we can go until 10.30, we can go till 11.30. I mean, I've got lots of time. Um, and, and typically my my most uh, you know most engaged I, I don't want to call them my best classes but my best classes are willing to add an hour or, or so to each lecture so no, no pressure uh, as a group um, no I'm kidding sorry, um, so let's let's
4: put since uh, <laughs> sorry we're gonna be disappointing <laughs> too um,
0: so let's plan on. In general, it'll uh, sort of make a judgment call based on you know, where we are. But some, somewhere in the, you know, between 8 and 8.30, something like that, it seems about right. Um, we'll pause. Um, and, and I think we can, we can probably do that today as well. Um, what I would say, uh, oh, okay. So if there are no other questions about the course, uh, like the syllabus. The next thing I wanna do there are a couple things left for today but the next thing is that about 6 30 i sent everyone an email with um a word document attached that's a survey and there are four questions um on the survey it's sort of like a little bit about yourself um, uh, or what's your educational background I should say um, and whether you study church history the reason I ask that is just to have a sense of like what the range is I mean if, if, if people have you know if, if a number of you have spent a lot of time studying history for some reason you know we just hit the jackpot and a lot of you were history majors or something you know then I that's helpful for me to know um, Rachel shaking her head no a little, a little more vigorously than I would like to be honest um, uh but just just to give me a sense, um, you know what what your what you're interest in the master's program that's self-explanatory. The goals for the course, again, th- these are just just for me to get a feel for like what you're what you're um, hoping to get out of the course. But the fourth one, question four is uh, is to list any topics in church history that you're you're interested in learning more about. In that parenthetical, I explained, but I'll just say it here you know if if you're interested in um if you know you have a really you know strong interest in in an obscure ninth century french saint you know that was you know a monk and and like six people have heard of like that's great but like i can't promise that i'll spend any time talking about that saint. but but like sometimes for example with uh with a, a group like the one we have uh you know this semester the, the development or the, the, the uh, yeah, the development of the, the ministry of Deacon in the early church is an interest to people and, and so um, again, I, it's not like I can make, make a, a promise that help will get to every one of your sort of interests but if there are certain things you know, sometimes people are interested in like the, the historical development of the sacraments or something I mean, look this is a, a big uh, sweeping course I'm necessarily doing a lot of picking and choosing about what to talk about and what not to talk about. And so, I mean, it's not, it's not like this is, uh, you know, entirely recreated every year, but, you know, each semester I like to ask and just, you know, here, if, if there are certain things that, that you're interested in, um, you know, let me know. And and if I can work them in a little bit uh, to, to our lecture when we get to that point in the course, I'm, I'm very happy to do it. And it keeps it, it kind of keeps the course a little bit fresh for me as well. Um, just to, to see that. so so how about this? Um, this is wh- why don't everyone has that? Oh, I hope if not, you know you can um, let me know here in a second. but if you could just um, fill that out, take I don't know five, ten minutes um, and and send that back to me, send it to my email. Um, you know, you can just save the document and then send it back. Um, that would be great. And what we'll do is it's 7:55 right now. So why don't we tie this into our break, um, and say 10 minutes, 10 minutes for the 8, 8, 8, 8:05 and another, what should our break be? About 10 minutes. Is that enough time? So have- what, what, what's the, what, what's the convention? Sorry. About
6: half an hour. Half an hour. Half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> good. Oh, well. Very good. But the truth be told, um, Father would to half an hour. would use, would say twenty minutes, and then it would be half an hour.
4: Most of my breaks have been ten to fifteen.
0: Okay. Okay. That's good. So, so the other thing I've noticed that's that's confusing to me, and some of you who are in, well, I don't know. Again, maybe it's different is this class is only two and a half hours. And i say only because there was a time where these masters and and, and academic formation classes were three hours, like three actual hours. And, um, but I, I guess that was several years ago. Um, and so I was more amenable to longer breaks when we had an additional uh, uh, half an hour. So we'll, let's stick to 15 minutes. Um, so if I'm doing the math right, uh, if you could fill out the survey, everyone. If you want to turn your cameras off or whatever, that's that's fine. Fill out the survey and and email it back to me, and then we'll go on to our break and come back at 8:20. Um, and then from there, we'll talk about. I'll I'll ask you some questions about studying church history, and I'll talk about some themes for our course. Does that sound good? So. Uh, if you have any issues, I'll be around here during the break. Uh, if you wanna uh, type in the chat box or whatever, I'll, I'll be around. So uh, do the survey email it to me and then, you know, stretch your legs, grab something to drink, and then I'll talk to you. We'll reconvene at 820. Same number of them, I, I uh, will be looking through them uh, and, and I'll send you in the next couple days. I'll uh, just send you a, a quick acknowledgement. If for some reason you're not done, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, if you could finish it, you know, by tomorrow at some point and send it to me. Um, it, again, it's really just helpful for for my own awareness and gets us thinking, I think, about about the course. Um, I, I always like to just ask. I mean, again, if if you want to offer up. Any um, particular, like, good question for any particular areas of of church history that, that, you know, you're sort of interested in? Does anyone want to, you know, share what what their interest might be? uh, Oh, yeah, how do we do this? Uh, Rachel, go ahead.
4: No, um, I'm always, you know, fascinated by the Protestant Reformation. Um, But just really, there's the difference of like, talking about it theologically or just people's opinions versus, like, from, like, the historical perspective, just, like, a deeper understanding yeah. of it. Great. Want talk about... <laughs> I was always interested in uh, the councils, especially Nicaea and the Christo- Christology involved with uh, defending the heresy of Arianism.
0: Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll definitely spend a good bit of time. In some ways, um, you know, this is what, like these are so important that I, I think there's probably like at least three courses in the curriculum, or maybe even more, that touch on on the councils, all, all in a slightly different way, obviously. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about the uh, the early councils for sure. I mean, so so critical to the formation of the church as we know it. So that's good. I'd like to hear about the history
6: and development of deacons in the church when when you know we know when they were first commissioned but what happened to them over the so 2000 some years and why were they relegated to something less than what some places would like them to be today that kind of thing yeah
1: excellent
2: why were the deacons suppressed
5: I think I yeah. I think I wonder about the same. It look like I'm, I the same. I for the same thing about the, the evolution of a, a chicken in the chicken and the at that time. What they doing in right mm-hmm.
0: now Yeah, no, definitely we can we can definitely um, as we go kind of be tracking the, <clears throat> the development of of that question.
1: And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the early church and and the formation and and basically the life of Jesus and how he preached and and obviously apostle paul also and what he had to go through
0: yeah that's great we'll, you'll be um we'll, we'll talk about that next week and i mean i, w- I will say you know in all honesty and sort of candor that We don't spend a ton of time on that part i mean i will have some things to say but by and large you know it's sort of post the the apostolic age
3: you know we really start our focus on in in earnest but but i definitely will have some comments on
0: on, on jesus and paul They seem somewhat important to the whole story i suppose back in the early Um, part of the church
1: there this is probably a loaded question um, especially since Pope Francis has brought it up, but in the very early days, there were deaconesses and now, very early on and uh, the uh, when they were, were, you know, the original order was bishop, deacon, priest and part of the problem came around later on as it became uh, bishop, priest, deacon but at one time, initially it was the deacon that was the assistant to the bishop of um, that's right. I'm curious about the role of the deaconesses, and hey, what happened there, and why did that die off? Sure. Yeah, we can, we can definitely talk about that.
0: Loaded, loaded questions or controversial topics are always welcome here. Um, wait, this isn't being recorded, right? Let me just confirm that.
1: No, I'm just kidding. Don't ask me whether I think there should be deaconesses, but that's all right. That's a different. Answer. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, no,
1: understood.
0: <laughs> Excellent, well, um, thanks everyone for, for, for doing that, and I look forward to reading, um, reading through these. So, what I'd like to talk about now, um, sort of, question of, of why why study church history in some ways you know I think even even with some of these initial exchanges we've, we've maybe started to, to get onto to some possible answers. Um, but I like to like think big picture about the endeavor of church history and, and talk about what, what do we even mean by it. Um, I, I like to talk about it because my understanding at least and I, I don't think this has changed, is that this is the, the lone church history course in the in the curriculum um and so you know this it, it's not uh you know this sort of broad methodological question seems worth worth at least discussing a little bit at the outset um you know because it's it's kind of our only opportunity your only opportunity maybe to to um, to think about it so um yeah, I, just a few questions on that, just to get us thinking again, and it's not anything more than an exercise in, in kind of getting the wheels turning in what we're about to do over the next uh, couple months, so it's a broad question, it's an open-ended question, There there's sort of multiple reasons one might give, but let, let me just toss it out there, Why, why study church history?
6: Well, as my, as my students of criminal justice say to me frequently, why should we study the history of policing when all we really need to do is talk about it today? And if you really think about that, that's ludicrous because mm-hmm. you, you need to have the appreciation for how you got to where you are to understand the importance of why you got to where you are. And also, I think more more importantly is to look at the mistakes that we made and to make sure that we don't make the same
0: mistakes again. Thank you,
1: excellent. 10 I, points. Those are all, I mean, those are all really important points. I think the study of church history is also evolution. It's, it's a matter of starting where it was 2,000 years ago and seeing how it evolved. I mean, you, you started off with a group of apostles, then you had Paul, uh, and i mean this this is something that started off as a seed that was planted and had to be nurtured and uh basically mm. church history is 2,000 years of, of fertilizer okay and, and it would add a tremendous amount to the homilies that we're going to have to be giving to put it in perspective and, and use it as examples because all the gospels obviously are are from way back when, and people are going to need to, you know, have explained to them.
5: I think it also goes to to further illustrate the point that over these two thousand years, yeah, there was a spiritual aspect of it, and that's good to know the theological aspects of it. But uh, where we are today as a church, we find ourselves subject to brutal attacks from the outside world, and we see there's also some dissent within, and. We, we, we look at that and we say, how horrible is that? But then if we become familiar with church history for the last 2,000 years, we begin to see, well, that's kind of the story. That's where we've been before.
4: Great, thank you. I think just in terms of, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was oh, gonna yeah. say, go ahead. Oh, go. Ahead. Go, ahead. Go, ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead. I was uh-huh. gonna say in terms of our own journeys, just the inspiration of, seeing how the church and some of these great saints the church fathers have been able to deal with such magnanimous problems and the holy spirit you know uh, working within the church and and inspiring these people i think it's for our own purposes i think it's very inspirational i think people have lost sight about how rich our heritage is and if you
1: look you look at some of the problems that we obviously have today with lack of attendance um, and so forth. I think a lot of this involves lack of identity. I think people have lost have lost a relationship between themselves and the church. And I think a lot of that is because of the loss of the history that goes along with it. That it's, it's part of what we're missing is the richness of where we've been to the importance of where we're going. And, and I think that's something that can come a lot into the preaching realm.
2: For me, I was, uh, I've had some conversations with, namely my son, who's a history teacher, um, and I would say to him, you know, the Catholic Church is the one true church, and he would ask me, why, why? Why are we the one true church? How do we know other other ones are not? Right? And It's just good to know the church history of, um, you know, just from the very beginning, where the, the, the roots of the Catholic Church. Come from to be able to answer that question.
0: That's great. What what level um, does he teach?
2: Well, he just started. He's actually he's teaching at he's teaching at Byron Hills High School in Armagh. Uh, actually, he had to teach a class on Christianity. So last night he was asking a lot of questions. Um, That's great. So I actually told myself I'm taking church history beginning tomorrow night. So let's keep talking, but. Um, he's
0: he's welcome anytime if he wants to sit in oh thank you he probably would like that I'm sure sure he would like that feel free yeah absolutely I'm happy to um excellent no these are all really good answers any other sort of thoughts or comments
5: yes uh for the last probably five or six years I've been cooking once a week in the winter time for a warming station up in Orange County here and uh I got to a conversation a year ago, January with the pastor that it's in the basement of the Methodist church and, uh, I had a conversation with him and you know, he didn't even know who founded his church and he knew nothing about the churches. So I, so I had my, I said, well, pastor, I got a question. What do you guys call the first 15 centuries? The dark ages? I said, because you know, you know, he didn't even know the Catholic church assembled the Bible. He knew nothing about the councils. He knew nothing. And he started to get, I was just talking like I'm talking now. And after about 10 minutes, he was basically screaming at me, uh, uh-huh. you know, and the funny thing was I had my neighbor who's a, uh, he's a fourth degree knight and he came with me and we got back in the car. He just laughing. He said, you know, we started this class two weeks ago about church apologetics. He said, I've heard about it, but I never saw it in action. So I'm thinking yeah. with this class, I'll, I'll have more ammunition.
0: great you know it's it's um just to, to react to all of those and and anyone who has something else to add feel free to jump in there in a sec but i mean i think honestly you know we we've, we've kind of touched on the the, the main the variety of, of, of reasons that, that one might sort of think about um this, this uh, endeavor being important and it does range from sort of like the um and I think it's worth including all of them, including like including the last point that was raised about sort of an apologetic um, reason. The uh, I think Doug Doug's point about um, you know the sort of spiritual nourishment that it can provide. Um, you know there are there are really you know strong reasons along those lines. But then also you know more um, uh, to sort of George's George's initial comment about you know understanding. Uh, you know where where we've come from and and you know some others you know the idea of like you know learning from the past understanding where maybe things went a little bit off track and and how that can help for the present and the future um you know to, to rob's point about identity and 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 the lack of identity um and, and how important that is uh in when sort of you connected to our current state of affairs and, and the sort of broader issue let's say of evangelization I mean without having a sense and understanding of of all of those things I mean it's it's really um, it, it can be very difficult to make sense of why, why even bother uh, you know with all of this um, and then you know, also you'll um, have to forgive me I'm, I'm not sure whose who's, uh, contribution it was but about the uh, oh, maybe it was Paul's about the, um, you know, the 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 situation we see the church in today, and and all the challenges, and and the ways in which you know there are real obstacles and, and dangers and persecution and, and all sorts of things like that, and how, you know, it, it's it's um the type of thing that that the church has experienced in, in various ways, you know, throughout its history. and can we learn something from the response of those who have come before? You know, to to, uh, to how to deal with challenges like um, persecution or or when when the the state maybe isn't amenable or, or sort of receptive to the the claims of Christianity. You know, how did how did uh, the early Christians act, or how did the um, you know the, the French Catholics after the French Revolution Act. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, I think there's a value, and this is my own view of, there's a value in, in studying history for its own sake. I and mean, I, I think that there's something important and good in that. Um, um, but but there is something very sort of tangibly applicable in sort of understanding the history in, in sort of uh, a way that can enable us to make better sense of our, present situation and, and sort of thinking about how we move forward um good the, the next sort of again a kind of a couple of open-ended questions you know we're, we're talking three here I, I, don't, I don't there's no i, I think uh, confusion around this point we're talking about you know the catholic church and and really, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, for the first half of the course, or the first half of the uh, you know the, the the history, if you will, itself, um, there isn't uh, this sort of division between East and West, and we'll, we'll talk about all of that. But but beyond just sort of saying that, that we're talking about sort of Latin Christianity or the, the Roman Catholic Church, however you want to say it, um, assuming that, what what do we mean by um, church and a kind of more specifically methodological question that I want to throw out there is how do you do it? How do you do church history? Um, and specifically, like what what types of sources you know would we look at um, if if we want to? I mean, I mean, obviously we have Vidmar's book, and you know that that's our our uh, source for the, for the the course. But if you wanted to, if you're sort of doing church history, you know. Um, and you were trying to understand something, what would be the types of sources? And, and the reason I raise that is because I think it's also related, so there's two questions here. What do we mean by church? And then how, what are the sources? How do we do it um, you know, when, when we're thinking about this, this actual um, sort of uh, endeavor of, of church history?
4: We could read Everett Dulles' book, Models of the Church. <coughs> Actually, yeah, I, in terms that, of, that was a book uh, review that I did for one of our other classes. Seems to be perfectly appropriate here, right?
0: Yeah, so say more about it for the benefit of, of maybe others who haven't who aren't familiar with the, the work. You know, in, in response to the question of what do we mean by church, what does Dallas have to say?
4: Well, he has like images of the church, right, that he used as, as models. And he looked, he did some, some research himself, and then he put together a, um, I guess we could call it almost an um, algorithm of the various. And, and he pointed out, you know, I'm not going to be able to name this five or six of them now. I think there were five. But there were strengths and weaknesses to each one. And then he ultimately came to the conclusion uh, that one of them was the more, I guess, um, effective. Model for all of the various purposes of the church, you know, community forming a community, you know, having worship and things like that. I wish I could name them for you, but I can. It was a while ago.
0: No, understood. No, that's and that's that's very helpful. And and I mean, Doug's work there is, is tremendously important and influential. Getting at. And, and Dulles was a point I'm you know hoping to draw out which is there are a number of we I mean we're we're just sort of throwing out this this term church or church history talking about church history as if it's sort of self-evident what we mean um, and in one sense we it is somewhat self-evident but but also like there are a number of ways of, of looking at the church Um and without having sort of the dullest nomenclature specifically at hand um, myself either, you know, one very common way, I'll just sort of say, um, and and I have to be honest, it's it's the way that probably will will come across the most frequently in our course together, but one very common way of sort of uh, thinking about the church and talking about it is a kind of, um, the institutional perspective, you might say, um, which, is, which is to say that, especially with the Catholic Church, the way it's uh, organized, that you look at the, the structure of the organization or the institution itself and sort of see the actors within that structure as sort of the key players um, you know, in, in, in moving things forward. And so that's popes right and bishops and uh, you know in, in, in some cases theologians, um, but especially you know the the members of the hierarchy um, as as being driving forces. And again, um, I, I would say that's probably the the type of um, kind of image or, or perspective view of the church that, that will be the most commonly sort of utilized here just because so many of the events and and, and keep people we're going to talk, talk about are sort of occupying that space but it's it's worth you know I, again i don't think this is new or, or news to anyone but it's it's worth saying here at the outset that that's not an exhaustive um account of, of what we mean by the church um, you know, and the, the people, the sort of um, the the communities of faith that exist on the local level are, you know, in, in many ways, um, obviously just as important to a, a sort of complete understanding of church history as, as um, you know, knowing what, what the popes said and did or what bishops said and did. Um, and so you know, there's a kind of institutional model, uh, an institutional
4: approach. If you wanted to, I, I put my finger on it, if you I'm wanted to. No other way. Time. I'm sorry, Doc, could you just repeat that thing? I was just gonna say, I was able to put my finger on it. I could give you the six with a quick sentence for each one if you wanted. Give us a little more focus. Well, that would be great. All right, great. so the, fir- the first was mystical communion, and that model emphasizes community. And the second is sacrament, the church as a sacrament, and it's the church as the visible sign of Christ in the world. And the third model was the church as servant, emphasizing the church's commitment to social justice. And the herald is the fourth. The model emphasizes the way the church announces the good news and, and professes the gospel. And then five, we have the church, the institutional model, which you just mentioned, emphasizing the structure and the order of the church. And then finally, I think, was the one that he ended up laying his hands on as the best, none of them being perfect, but the best one, Community of Disciples, was the one that he um, emphasized where people follow Jesus, trying to be like him in everything they do. In other words, just trying to emulate the life of Jesus, I guess. Each one has strengths and weaknesses. Yes, thank thank you very much, Doug.
0: I, I think, and again, I, I think that those are those are all helpful. Again, without making a claim that you know one of them is like the, the only way or the perfect way. I mean, Charles himself, as you as you know, points out the limitations of the various ways. I mean, I think certainly in, in recent decades, and, and this is a uh, an outgrowth of uh, Vatican II, um, which again I, I suspect you you all probably know from other studies. You know this emphasis of the church, let's say, as the people of God, um, is, is certainly, um, you know, has I think become more common or, or more prevalent. Um, you know, the mystical body of Christ was another, you know, sort of useful name for the church that, that especially in the 20th century, you know, had some had some traction. And what it, I think what that speaks to. Was, you know, is, is this broader point that, again, I, I just want to make at the outset here, which is while a lot of what we'll be talking about is, is kind of institutional church history, uh, but we'd not want us to to sort of uh, overlook the fact that, again, there's a lot more to understanding your church history um, than, than simply, you know, how the institutions developed. And to that end, you know, I will try at, at various points to, you know, maybe pause the narrative a little bit and say, well, what was life like for the um, sort of the uh, quote unquote everyday or average Catholic in the, whatever, the third century or something like that? Um, you know, what was the, like, what was earth like? Um, that, you know, the, it speaks to this idea that that there is uh, you know a lot to be understood and, and studied within the sort ex- of lived experience we might say of uh, of Catholics through time. Now it's it's not always easy to ascertain those things, to be honest with you, um, and and that speaks to another challenge and. If you don't mind, because I, I want to uh, cover a couple other points, I'm just going to sort of uh, talk about the answer to my own question <laughs> about sources, um, and we'll just sort of keep moving. Um, you know, the reason that it's very difficult, in a sense, to to do church history in a way that isn't focused on the institutional kind of uh, perspective, if you will, is that they're often it's often very difficult to find sources outside of the institution um, what do I mean so if I say you know what what are some of the sources that we might how do you do church history what are some of the sources that you might look at I mean I think you know there's lots of answers um, but you know the types of documents things we would look at would include decrees of the councils um, you know papal uh, papal statements, right? What, what did the Pope write? Whether it's you know the papal bulls of the or, you know, Middle Ages, or in more recent times the sort of papal encyclicals that we're, we're all very familiar with. You'd look at that. You'd look at um, individual bishops and, and their own writings, um, you know, their, their teachings. Um, you know, you have the councils, but then I think you know you have some uh, more localized m- meetings of the Church. Uh, the, the various synods that took place—I mean, we still have that word now. Although now, when we talk about synods, it tends to be a more global perspective. In the early church, the synod was a kind of local, localized meeting. Um, so you would look at those decrees, you would look at those—you um, know—the statements that they that they um, they made, because you know this is just how the institution kept track of you know what it was doing. And, and so that's all very kind of available to us. Now, it, that should be clear, like there are um, early, some early church councils where we, we don't have a complete, you know, or, or even much at all of a record of, of what they, they decided and what they did. Um, but, you know, we're able to piece it together in various ways. Um, but when you talk about sort of this broader, um, inception of, to include communities of, uh, well, what documents are available if for the vast, for the bulk of uh, church history, the vast majority of Catholics and vast majority of people for that matter, couldn't read or write. Um, you know, what what kind of, if we want to have some sense of the the experience of an everyday, Catholic in the, you know, 8th century, well, I mean, where could you even possibly look um, if, if they weren't leaving their own, you know, they, they weren't writing diaries. I mean, another good source, frankly, for, for doing church history would be, like, the diaries of, um, again, sort of bishops and theologians. That's how we, we learn a lot about, um, you know, what, what was taking place. But who can leave who can leave such documents to us? Well, the people who are who are literate, people who have the means to receive an education and um, uh, and the means to you know um, produce produce these kinds of uh, historical documents, and that excludes a huge portion of you know Catholics throughout the ages. Um, and so again, we we piece it together through other ways. Um, you know, liturgical texts, for example, that that we do have from the early church help us have some sense of what you know the experience of worship would have been like for you know uh, for Catholics. Um, but in terms of like the the more personalized, um, you know, what was it? What was life parish, let's say, parish life like in the you know 11th or 12th century? You know, it's really only by Kind of inference that we can we can create some some picture of that, um, and the sources again are are heavily heavily tilted in the direction of the kind of official institution uh, institutional channels uh, that that we have, and so um, yeah, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. It's it's not a, a you know a, a defect or a problem necessarily. It's just when you go into the study of any topic frankly you're doing history in, in any way you know on any on any subject one of the key questions is what are the sources what sources are available which ones should we look at and, and especially when you you know, go further and further back um, you know you don't you don't have a lot of selection necessarily and so you you, you do the best with what you have um, you know it's interesting i'm just speculating here um, but in opposite our current age which is um everything probably i mean maybe i'll be wrong about this who knows but everything is going to be um available you know videos of, of you know all the stuff is that's on video events things like that emails um Twitter accounts, whatever, and there's gonna be such a glut of um, source material that I think it's going to be very difficult to figure out how to construct a coherent narrative with the the vast amount of sources. I mean, just think about, I mean, uh, American political history and like the, the presidential libraries. Like every time there's a new presidential library, like you get this sense of, um, you know the ever increasing amount of, of documentation and data and all sorts of things that are that are taking place and um, you know 200 years from now what will that look like I mean uh, again it's, it's speculation but I think they're gonna have the historians in the future will have the opposite problem which is somebody will be stuck reading uh, you know 50,000 emails, <laughs> um, trying to figure out which ones, you know, really, sh- really speak to the, um, you know, the events of the day when it comes to the 2020 election or something like that. Um, whereas the the documentation around, uh, you know, the, the papal election in the 13th century is, is much more limited. Um, and so, uh, you know, those those are the the trade-offs that that I think, uh, you know, will be involved. Okay, um, I do want to, oh, go ahead, Will.
2: Yeah, just a, a comment, you know, when you mention the Internet and the variety of sources and the glut of information, um, all those things are true, but I think what's a, really, a, I guess, a greater danger to the church, it seems to me, is that, you know, if you, you talk about the church as the people of God or the mystical body of Christ, or the community of disciples or communion in some sort, like Dulles talked about. What's always saved the church was when the institution failed the church. The sacraments, the the doctrine, the tradition, the sacraments, the things, uh, Christ himself kind of saved the church from the failings of the institution. Now, it seems to me, that the people are actually um, fleeing and, and their core beliefs are changing. And that is a much greater danger in my mind than the failings of the institution because these other things are substantive. You know, they're, the, the other one, the institution, you've had great men, you've had great popes, you've had, you know, sinners who are popes. Uh, and leaders but you know it, it doesn't matter how much information you have those things that Christ gave us those should never change the truth shouldn't change but I, I actually do see a critical stage in our church right now where where those truths are changing where people are you know going by their own truths in a relativistic way way and that's threatening the, the very core of the church it's just a, a comment no, thank you i appreciate that
1: well said
0: um very good uh if i yeah could just sort of uh sort of raise again for our consideration a broad question that that surrounds really the, the work of doing history, or, or what it means to sort of do history. Sometimes I think there's a,
3: there's a, an expectation that there can be um, a, a kind of a f- official history,
0: let's say, and that the history is a subject with, um, you know, the, the kind of, uh, but the work of history, I should say, is to put together a, something like an objective account of what happened. Um, so, it, you know, that might even be a definition that, that somebody could say, like history is the, is the sort of the study of, you know, things that happened in the past from, you know, a perspe- and, and sometimes this is implied, from a kind of objective standpoint. And uh, I, I just wonder, you know how do you do history objectively and, and what is that if, if I you know if, if somebody were to say well you know we're, we're going to study over the next whatever it is 11 12 weeks um, you know history objectively how would you respond to that
6: Well, one of the, one of the ways I think that, go ahead. One of the things you can consider, and, and, and we do this with American studies all the time, If, 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 something is happening and you're looking at something historically in your own country, what better way to have that critiqued? Is it better to have it critiqued from somebody from your own country or have it critiqued from somebody else's country? So I think taking in a lot of of other people's points of view at what we're doing and what our history has taught us is maybe a better way to learn about ourselves.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Sorry, was it Rob? Somebody else said something? I, I was going to pretty much take the same direction.
4: Yeah. Let me just throw out out? there. Oh, go go ahead, Doug. Sorry. I was just going to say that, you know, certain looking back, even today in the back, there's always something that's objectively true. Now, obviously, those are limited nowadays, given relativism, but there are certain historical facts that are objectively true. The Council of Nicaea met in whatever 354, right? So you could look at it that way. But then what brought those people together, I guess, brings us to questions of, Debate, right? I mean, what were their thoughts? What were their opinions? What were they trying to accomplish? And that's when we can get into, you know, a whole bunch of um, different points of view, I guess. Yeah,
0: that's that's excellent, and I'm just gonna um, build on that by by sort of throwing out for our consideration along these lines that that it really isn't possible to. Sort of do history objectively, or or that there is no such thing essentially as a kind of objective history. Um, Now there are objective, as as you're saying, there are sort of objectively true things. We can state, we can state certain kinds of uh, let's say facts that that um, that occurred. Uh, uh, You know, this thing happened on this date. This this pope died in this this year and it was succeeded by the, the the next one. Okay, those are objectively true. But to put together a a narrative, to, to tell the history of something, um, I think we want there to be a kind of objectively true version of it. But I think upon kind of closer examination, it's it's very difficult and, and maybe even just not not even the right goal to do so. And the reason I, I sort of propose that is, you know, the, the standard of objectivity, if you will, is something we, ha- we have in our minds, but it, it's very difficult to see how one gets there um, in, in the sense of when you're doing history, it's necessarily a series of choices about what to consider and how to weigh them and how to put so I'm going to do uh, if I'm going to do some work on the uh, whatever the French Revolution or something you know I can uh, you know I'm making a decision if you will about as a historian I would make a decision about which which things do I look at and which which um, writing or which events do I see as more pivotal than other events, there's always a series of choices that are being made. And those choices that are being made by a historian are motivated by any number of presuppositions that that historian brings to the table. And, I mean, I I, want to be very clear. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think where we get into trouble is when um, historians are either unaware or sort of unwilling to talk about where you know what their presuppositions might be and so I'll, I'll give you an example because I, I think or a, a couple of examples because I think it it speaks to you know the various ways that you know we encounter history and, and, um, and I just think it's hopefully useful or, or thought-provoking so if you were to study uh, well, okay, Rachel mentioned the, um, the Protestant Reformation as being um, as being of interest, and and I think um, you know with any major historical like really pivotal kind of uh, inflection point, you, you can see this. So the other good example besides the Protestant Reformation, I think in kind of Western history is is the French Revolution. So you take these two events, the, the Reformation and the French Revolution. And if you went to the, to the library or to a library or looked online or whatever, you could find books that are, that have titles like the following, the economic origins of the Protestant Reformation, the religious origins of the Protestant Reformation, the technological origins, the cultural origins, you know, and on and on. Uh, The French Revolution, there are literally, I mean, again, this is because it's it's in my uh, sort of, it was in the area where I spent a lot of time reading, you know, the religious origins of the French Revolution next to a book on the economic causes of the French Revolution, next to a book on the the, sort of the political underpinnings of the French Revolution. And each of them is um, sort of coming at an important topic. From a a very distinct perspective. So, I mean, it goes—you know—it's maybe an obvious point, but like an economic historian is looking at, well, if you look at the, um, the, the um, trade patterns and the way in which certain um, economies in the Holy Roman Empire were developing. You know you kind of come to some conclusions about you know what was going on in germany around the time of martin luther or you know again the french revolution you could do this economic analysis of the sort of um global booms and busts that were happening um in the in the 18th century that led to uh you know the louis the 14th's um extravagant military spending created unsustainable structural debt in france and you know sowed the seeds of of the revolution, you know, based on economic discontent. Then you could look at, you know, um, political, a, a purely political analysis of, um, you know, the Reformation and who was the Holy Roman Emperor and who was the, the, um, you know, the prince in in, um, in in Martin Luther's region and what were their interest, how were their interests aligned or misaligned? What was the Pope's political interest? You could also look, again, talking about the Reformation at, and I think this is the the area that maybe we're most familiar with, like the, the religious claims about it. You know, what was Luther's theology, and how were how was that those how were those theological claims, you know, running into opposition from you know, uh, Catholic theologians. My point is, um, there are all these different perspectives that that you know one could take based on the sort of presupposition that you have about which evidence is most important to look at to best understand or explain a given event and you know that's that's often how history is done and I, I guess you know from my perspective and again you, you're more than free to, to disagree um, what I would say is the, the work of of a historian, and hopefully, what what I'll try to do and what we'll try to do together in this class is to account for as much of those, as many of, of those perspectives as we can. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, you know, have to be realistic here while recognizing that, you know, there's going to be a kind of premium on or a priority, let's say, given to um, the sort of institutional and political explanations for a lot of things alongside some of the the sort of theological explanations because we're dealing with church history.
1: Um,
0: You know, it's it's not, I think, um, uh, desirable, if at all possible, to just like rule out entirely um, any one perspective and just say, well, economics couldn't have had anything to do with, um, you know, this event.
3: I mean, I think the, the work of a historian is to try to account for as many perspectives
0: as possible. And to George's point, here is something I think that's really helpful too, is, and this is another big kind of question of like the, the practice, the, the methodology of doing history, you know, is is it better to do history, sort of what they would say, from within or from 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 without? You know, is it better to, to read a, a history of um um, uh, America from an American historian or from a European historian and the truth is there there isn't a right answer there um there's always pluses and minuses to both this is especially true in in terms of um doing church history like is it better will a Catholic historian understand an event more clearly than a non-Catholic, than a Protestant historian, or a Muslim historian. And the answer is it depends. I mean, there's no automatic premium uh, or automatic uh, sort of advantage. Now, there are, again, there are, because there are trade-offs. So a Catholic historian will probably grasp certain subtleties around, you know, maybe some liturgical event that was part of, you know. Um, Uh, you know, this council that took place, uh, you know, a Catholic historian may grasp certain subtleties and nuances in a way uh, because of his or her familiarity with the ritual, let's say, that that somebody outside might not. On the other hand, a, a person who's not sort of examining this from within might be more likely to account for external factors that aren't, um, you know, maybe as evident to, you know, the Catholic historians studying. So it really just uh, is, a, is a question of trying our best to incorporate, you know, as broad a, s- a series of um, perspectives into some, some kind of coherent understanding. I mean, the, the, the example, sort of most common example, I think, in American history is the Civil War. Um, you know, was the civil war was a civil war about slavery, or was it about states' rights, or was it about you know the economic um, economic developments in in you know with the industrial revolution? And I mean, I think you know where where I would propose you, you know, you'd want to go in in answer to that question is to look at as much of the, those different perspectives as possible and, and try to come to weave together some coherent explanation. Um, while, while not just saying, well, it was purely about slavery. Well, that, that doesn't seem to match up, you know, as best as we can tell, to say that it's 100% about slavery. Uh, um, but it doesn't, well, um, so I, I think that's that's the balancing act, and, and that's, um, you know, one of the challenges, but, um, I don't know. I, I just I, I offer that for our consideration here as we, you know, start this course to maybe keep in our minds some of the limitations and, and also the the delicate nature of doing history.
1: But a lot of times don't you have to also look at the agenda of the on the part of the persons that are doing the writing? And the reason I mean I mean by that, if if somebody's writing with intent of trying to discredit They're going, you know, they're they're not going to do it from an objective standpoint. They're going to they're going to do it from a specific standpoint of of trying to cause what damage. and I'll give you a good example. You've mentioned American history a few times. Um, one of the first papers that I ever had to write that was published was a history of the American Revolution using a 100% British bibliography, and it's fascinating because every one of our heroes. We're absolute rabble rousers as far as we're yeah. concerned. So if you're writing, if you're writing, you know, about the, uh, the Reformation, you're writing it from the standpoint of Catholic writing or is a Lutheran writing, and you're, you're going to come up with two totally, absolutely different, you know, uh, objections. You know, it's, it's going to be totally different. So I think, you know, you've also got to look and see wh- who's what is the agenda. There's, there was enough people that wrote on the French Revolution that were very opposed to the, to the French government, the French, you know, the uh, monarchy, And they're obviously going to write from a standpoint, from a negative standpoint. And you can find the same thing in Christianity. The uh, people that are going to write, write, write it from a negative standpoint because of their the agenda that they're bringing into the program. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Rob. I think that's an
0: excellent point and, and add some clarity to something that I sort of had in mind, but maybe didn't say as clearly, which is when I talk about the, sort of the challenge or maybe the lack of objectivity, if you will, or, or the possibility of a kind of objective history, I said, you know, everyone has a, a kind of set of presuppositions or you might, you might even say everyone has certain biases that they bring in. Now, that's not a the bias is a word that we has a negative connotation for us but doesn't have to. Um, you're so I see that kind of as like a, a spectrum or a continuum. and what you're describing is sort of the the people that are really that have an axe to grind, let's say, or that that have made a determination ahead of time. I'm a Lutheran. I think that the 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 Catholics are. be wrong about this. My agenda as a growth figure. The, uh, you know, going into my study of this. So that's to me, like, kind of on one end of, like, the, the biased spectrum, let's call it, where you have, like, a real out-and-out agenda. You know, I'm an atheist historian. I think all religion is nonsense. Therefore, you know, when I approach the study of church history, like, I view these people as, like, kind of nuts. Um... Okay, that's there. My point is, even when we come to the other end of the spectrum, there's some amount of, unavoidably, some amount of selection or bias in what do I think is important. Even if I'm doing my very, very best to tell, you know, as sort of objective or honest a story as I possibly can about the Reformation, I have to choose to look at and weigh more heavily some things than others. And so um, I, I think, you, you know, you raise an important point, which is like the, the like, again, I see it as kind of a spectrum, if you will, or a continuum of how much do you let your presuppositions um, guide what you're doing and how aware of you are, how aware of them are you when you're doing this work? And, and I think, um, yeah, that's a real problem. I mean, I will say just as a historical note, um, this idea that, that, that I'm talking about in terms of how you might do history, you know, taking into account all of these things and, and not trying not to have too much of an agenda is not the way history was done um, until the last uh, 100, and 100 or 150 years or so. In fact, when you read church history, when you read Catholic historians and Protestant historians' accounts of the Reformation, you should read them with the knowledge that what it meant to do history at that time was totally different than what we're talking about. Um, A Catholic historian was absolutely coming at at it with a kind of agenda the same way the the Protestant historians were. It was simply the way they understood the discipline of history. It was much more apologetic in nature than than we tend to think about it now. Um, The goal was to really you know, show that the other side was wrong and your side was right. And so does that mean that those those historical works, you know, from the sixteen or seventeen hundreds are worthless because they were written with an agenda? I would say no. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we have to be aware of what their agendas are. I mean, even um, even sort of today, like in pick your field, you know, there are these kind of like radical historians that, that come out with like very strong, let's say Marxist perspectives on something. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't, If compelling specs of um, insight into, you know, economic conditions or whatever that, that, that somebody with a clear agenda is highlighting. I think, you know, we want to be open to the possibility that that, that they could touch on something that, that might be worthwhile. But as much as possible, it's, it's helpful, I think, to know what you know, or to try and discern what the agendas may be. That's actually something when, when you do the book review, um this it's to sort of having the back of your mind, which is, you know, as the author's laying out this sort of thesis about this or that historical event, like do you detect any biases? Um, you know, do you detect any any um agenda at work? And often it, you know, with scholarly works hopefully it's more subtle, but but, you know, it, it exists. It, it exists everywhere you look. Okay, um, so we've got about 10, 10 minutes left, left. and um, I, I want to put a, a sort of uh, capstone, if you will, on this, this whole discussion and, and also this first cor- uh, first meeting by laying out three themes for our course and the good news is um, I think actually we've already kind of discussed or not discussed we've already kind of heard about um, through some of your responses to the previous questions uh, different different um, aspects of each of these three themes and I just like to give them I mean I'll say a very little bit about each of them but it's like um, this is our first class, and it's like keep these in the back of your mind as we go forward. Um, and again, I don't think there's anything like overly um, surprising here, but it's just you know these are kind of threads that that um, run throughout the course and can kind of tie things together. So the first uh, theme, if you will, for for our course and I think to keep in mind. And again, at least at least a few of, uh, of you have, have mentioned it, is the theme of um, change or development over time within the church. That there is, um, you know, a clear sense in which as we move through history, the church develops, it grows, it's, it's sort of a living organism. You know, we don't have the, the same... Um, Structure as existed in the first century, um, or even the fifteenth century, for that matter. When I talk about development here, I realize, you know, that's a. I'm not sure. Is something developed, right? I mean, we're not going to and focus heavily on that. You know, we're we're looking at it from a more historical perspective, and we won't dive too deeply into the. Um, in some of those questions, but um, um, development, growth, change, whatever—all those you know, words kind of interchangeably—just to notice and, and to notice ways in which maybe the church is changing more rapidly in certain eras than others, um, and, and where it, you know where those differences may arise. The second, um, the second major theme. And, and again this, somebody mentioned this well, it, to, to just continually be thinking about is the relationship between church and culture and and i mean culture in a very broad sense here to include politics to include like the political order of the day um you know how is that relationship uh changing how is it um, you know look I, I don't think it's it's any secret you know the church is founded in a, in a period of time where the relationship between church and culture is pretty hostile right um, and, and we'll, we'll see the persecutions early on and then uh, here's the thumbnail sketch right of, of church history um, and then over time, you know, church and culture start to work a little bit more closely together, like the political order and, 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 and uh, the church uh, leaders tend to start to, to, you know, work in concert more. Then you get to a period in the Middle Ages where the church and culture are effectively united um, or, or pretty close to that, where, you know, the church
3: is kind of... Um, Permeates, you know, all aspects of
0: culture in what we might call the High Middle Ages. Um, and then, you know, as we, we wind forward towards, you know, the French Revolution, you know, there's it sets in another adversarial kind of uh, um, period of, of persecution into the modern era, where, where, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of, of tension in certain in certain uh, ways. And so, just this relationship is a fluid relationship. It's constantly changing, um, and and it's important for us to, you know, keep that in mind. You know, there are times where the popes are crowning the kings, and um, I, I will say, you know, uh, Pope Francis was conspicuously absent from uh, the inauguration last week. Um, uh, you know, you know, you have a little prayer, but not not this major presence of uh, you know religious issues. It's just not the American um, sort of tradition. The point I want to make is sort of to think about directional arrows and which which uh, which is exerting influence um, on the other. And again, I'm not proposing that there's you know hard and fast answers to these, but I would say you know. You know, are there periods of time where the church exerts more influence in, in sort of on on the broader culture on society? Uh, yes. And are there other instances where society or the culture exerts influence on the church? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think this was Will's point to some degree, um, or not the specific point, but the the issue that that was raised around, you know, some of the challenges the church is facing and relativism and and those kinds of things. It seems to me at least um, that that's an example of society or cultural trends kind of exerting influence that impacts the church rather than the the other way around. So uh, for what it's worth, again, I think, you know, you see the, the relationship changing, but you also see sort of the influences um, shifting in terms of which is exerting more influence on the other. And then finally, and I'll I'll pause for any questions after the, this, this last one. And this is less of a, you know, a, a theme for our course than just like in general, especially when it comes to history, um, which is that, you know, history is, we're looking at people, we're looking at events that, you know, people are involved in and, as a result, we, we need to keep in mind that, that people and situations are complicated. And you know, my sort of summary of this is beware of easy explanations. Beware of easy historical explanations. It's um, it's easy, and, and I mean, to some degree, I, you know, I'm not excluding myself from doing this. You, you kind of put people in the good or the bad column. You know, this was a good pope, this was a bad pope. Um, it's not to say that you can't make determinations about it. Uh, about you know, overall, it just we have to be careful. One of my favorite examples is um, a pope during during the Avignon papacy, which you know obviously we'll talk about. But it's this period that's sometimes called the Babylonian captivity of the Church, and um, and uh, you know it's seen as this period of excess where the popes were kind of under the thumb of the French king and and all this kind of stuff and, and they were really kind of puppets and extra and there was all sorts of extravagant spending and you know not really being spiritual leaders the way we you know like to think about what a pope should be and um so they were the the papacy was in avignon it was in france and uh, modern day france and the plate uh, enough and uh, spreading down across the continent towards Avignon and eventually it, it it was about to reach Avignon and the Pope's advisors, the Cardinals, all, all of the bureaucracy, if you will, the aristocracy around the Church said, uh, let's get out of here. I mean, they had the means and the opportunity to leave Avignon before um, the plague got there. And the Pope at the time, uh, I think, it was Innocent VI, and we'll, we'll, I mean, I'll mention this when we get there. Was sort of reputed for being, again, the stereotypical Avignon Pope. He spent like an exorbitant amount of money on his papal tiara, um, the crown they used to wear. He spent like you know a third of the annual revenue of the the papacy on on this thing. Um, you know, he was known for giving lavish parties. He was known for doing all sorts of things, you know, that that would strike us as kind of inappropriate. And, and we would put him into like the sinners category, right? You have saints and sinners, or whatever. We would put him firmly in the the bad category. And yet, while all of his, well, almost all of his uh, cardinals decided to leave Avignon, um, he stayed and ministered to the sick. Um, who, you know, who contracted the plague and later died, not directly from the plague, but by it's bought by complications relating to his time, you know, kind of being exposed to it. And so my point is simply, you know, it's easy to look at the Avignon popes and say, well, here's a list of, you know, popes during this period, bad popes. And did they do things that you know maybe weren't were in line with what the Christian uh, message is supposed to be? Yeah. But you know we wouldn't expect him to have stayed. He had every opportunity not to stay. A Mo- number of people around him didn't stay, and yet he did. Um, and so it's, again, simply to say any kind of easy, simple categorization is perilous, uh, and we, we, we have to try and take into account the, the ways in which these people can be complicated. Any questions or, or comments? I know we're at 929 and I, I didn't leave much time for that, but if anyone has a question or wants to react to anything I said. Oh, Rob, you're muted if you're...
1: All right, your third point, how would you summarize it into a statement? Your, your first two points, you had you had a single sentence that you summarized it. If we were making a list of the three aims, what, what, how would yeah. you summarize the third aim? Yeah, it is
0: to uh, I, I think I like beware of easy explanations and recognize the complexity of uh, people and situations that we study.
1: I don't know if it's your computer or mine, but your, your voice is going out from time to time. I don't know if anybody else is experiencing that or not.
0: A number of yeah, people are it shaking It's funny because the last thing I wanted to do is ask how this was um, in terms of the connection. Um, so that's that's helpful feedback. I'll look into it. I mean, I'm actually hardwired in. I'm not even relying on my wireless here. Um, did you? So I apologize for any of those difficulties. Did you get that third
1: point, Rob? Yeah, I read lips, so I'm okay. <laughs> I'm deaf. Okay. All right, so I'm o- I'm okay with it, but you would be talking and there'd be no sound.
4: Hmm. Okay. Well, how would uh, you? Deaf. You probably picked up more than we did. <laughs> Well, that's that's
0: good to know. And as we go through the course, then you know um, you'll have to, you know, whether it's typing it in the chat or just like waving your arms wildly, like maybe that's the signal, because obviously I can't tell when that's going on. Um, and if if I know anything about how these things typically work, I'll probably cut out right as I'm saying something like the most important takeaway from this this period in history is exactly and then it will go.
3: with
0: <laughs> So so yeah, don't please don't I mean, look, it's it's unfortunately, um, you know, the, the, uh, the trade off of, of being able to continue with, with the course in this in this uh, mode, is, is that it may be less than perfect. But um, please don't hesitate to, to interrupt me to, to get clarification or I'll re- happily repeat anything. Well, listen everyone thanks very much uh i look forward to a good uh, semester together if you have any questions or anything between now and next monday don't hesitate to reach out and um we will uh continue
3: uh, next
0: monday
5: professor could you oh, send a copy this go someone? ahead Rob. yes thank you because i i, I for some reason i didn't get it
3: okay no problem cool thanks
5: Sorry. Thanks. Oh.
3: Okay. Thank you. Bye, bye, doctor. Take care. Everyone.